Welcome to Life Changes You. I'm Daniel. I hope you've had a great week. That's what I say every week, but I still think I want to wish you a good week. Today, I have with me Lincoln Stoller, and uh, I'm going to let him tell you a little bit about himself because this man has uh, achieved lots of things, uh, but I think today we're talking about the mind and mathematics uh, and infinite complexity. Hello, Lincoln. How are you? I'm, I'm good. That's good. And you're in Canada. I'm in Canada. Well, physically in Canada, just to start off on the right foot here. <laughs> so it's your afternoon for you. It's early in the morning here for me. Do you want to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about yourself? Because you've got a pretty impressive academic record. Right. Uh, I have failed in many ways that were impressive. I, I, you know, I have tried to go far. And, you know, there's a certain success in failing at the impossible. And the impossible has been, I've consistently tried to align myself with people who don't want to align themselves with me. And that's really valuable, I found. Because, you know, if you align yourself with the people who think like you, then you don't go anywhere. You just stay in the same orbit. So I have been proud to say that I've managed to survive many relationships. And I guess I respect these people, but I also have my reservations. So um, just to be specific, I am the son of two parents who were too old to have kids when they had me as their third kid. Right. So they were already over it all, which meant I avoided that sort of strife and projection that most parents do. And my brother and sister are so much older than me that they couldn't care. You know, I was an afterthought and they were out of the house before I was even out of diapers. It's true. And so, you know, it's like, uh, be careful what you wish for, you might get it kind of thing. I, I don't actually advise people to do what I did, which is sort of be an only child. But I have to say it uh, gave me wide horizons. Right. So the result of that is I was always rebellious and always felt that I was undervalued and always fought with my teachers to the point of them actually trying to hold me back, you know, punish me. Yeah. And uh, they didn't succeed. But I finally, after much dissatisfaction, made my way to a college that had an open syllabus where you could do what you wanted. And so I went many places, did many things. I was interested in physics because I wanted to know the answers of things. And I thought that was where you found them. Yep. I don't quite believe that anymore, but I do like the discipline and container of, uh, you know, mathematics will tell you unequivocally that you're wrong. And that's a hard to get in many fields. And you can feel in mathematics that you really are stupid, whereas in other fields, you have these sort of manic phases where you think you're smart. So like I've worked with a bunch of mathematically exceptional people, and they've said to me, you're not smart enough to do this. Wow. So that's kind of great in that it gets a person like me motivated. Yeah. But also they were sort of right in that I'm not entirely overwhelmed with mathematics like they are so it's interesting you know uh i don't believe in teachers i will come right out and say this to alienate all of your audience who's teachers i'm anti-teacher right i'm pretty much and, and i was interested to listen to an interview with carl rogers last night yeah an old interview and he was anti-teacher too quite quite literally and quite explicitly because we're pro-mentor you know we're we're the kind of people who throw you into the deep end of the pool knowing that you know how to swim. 
Yeah. Whereas teachers can't do that because they're not allowed to forsake you. And, uh, you know, there's also stories. There's a story about uh, the guy from Virgin Atlantic. Oh, Richard Branson. Yeah. How his mother, when he was four, she took him out to the boundaries of London and said, walk home. And um, he did. And he credits that with uh, an epiphany. Wow. And one of my teachers, um, John Gatto, who's a, who was a radical educator till he died. Well, maybe he still is. Would take his students when no one was looking out into the boroughs of New York and tell them to find their way home. So my best teachers have done that. And so I got a PhD in physics and um, I felt sort of like uh, not a ping pong ball, um, pinball felt like a pinball sort of bouncing off all these valuable obstacles like the mathematician who told me I wasn't smart enough, but then not always. Some people were tremendously encouraging and some of them were tremendously brilliant. And some of them, well, they're all brilliant. Some of them didn't know how to read, you know how it is. So I went to many cultures, people in the Amazon and Central America and the Caribbean and into Mongolia and um, traveled around a lot. And I was a mountaineer as a 13 year old. I have a great memory of wandering up a cliff until I got high enough to realize I was in mortal danger without knowing how, without having a clue about what to do. I mean, I had a rope on, but I didn't know what you did with it. Yeah. And what happens to a person at that point is you struggle with panic. Yeah. And you realize if you have any presence at all, that you can't give in to panic. Yeah. Because freaking out in a dangerous position doesn't help anything. In fact, it'll probably cause you to fall off. So after that, I was never scared of heights again. Right. And I, you know, this is the kind of thing that you couldn't do this as a teacher. You couldn't put someone in that position. At least it would be irresponsible, but you could do it as a mentor. In other words, you give them the resources and say, go at it. Good luck. And the best learning I've done has been with people who did that. And uh, I give myself credit for surviving. Yeah. Prevailing, that's another thing. But, uh, you know, advancing, succeeding. I always feel, uh, this is my failure. I always feel like I'm slightly a failure. And even saying that is a failure. So it's, it's, it's one of those roundabout things, which is full of fertility and frustration. But look, I, I think what a lot of people don't actually get is they fear so much about failing that they don't realize how much they learn through that failure and what opportunities come from that. It's the only, I would stick my neck out and say it's one of the only places you learn. Yeah. I mean, cause if you succeed, it just means you did it right the first time and now you do it again. Yeah. Well, what, what has gained, what have you gained except uh, habitual confidence, but if you fail, then you know several important things. You know that you're not as smart as you thought you were, which is kind of good sometimes if you're in the presence of great potential. And you know that there's got to be broader thinking, which is always useful. Broader thinking is always useful. Um, just to get it back to psychology, I've taken a core uh, a degree program in the last year, which has been like having my teeth pulled in having to read mediocre textbooks and sort of acquiesce to mediocre teachers. And I did have the opportunity in this degree program to watch videos of excellent, inspired psychologists. And, uh, you know, they're all intuitive, non-prescriptive and non-formulaic. And they do crazy stuff, you know, like hugging their patients and singing songs to them, which seem that you never do. 
but they know what they're doing somehow. And look, I, I agree with you because when we've spoken before, we've actually spoken about how I, I, I feel the same as you. I don't think there needs to be like we need to have boundaries, but then sometimes you have to work on the individual and you have to work with that individual as to what that individual likes or needs or wants rather than going, well, this is what it says in the textbook I have to do. Because with some people, there's no way of breaking through and helping them if we are sitting back. And I know psychology isn't supposed to be judgmental, but in some ways by just sitting back in your chair, you are judging and you're waiting for an answer. Whereas if you try something, like you said, singing a song, I think I told you I worked with a guy with mild autism and we would do five minutes of a session and in five minutes of playing games because he couldn't hold his attention longer than that to be able to tell me what was bugging him. And that's how we got through a lot of the issues. Whereas his mum said, oh, they usually just sit and talk to him for 45 minutes and he comes out bewildered as to what's just gone on. Well, like I said, when we started, today's focus on my head has been complexity and sort of the infinite unknowable of trying to know anything. Yep. And in that vein, I got involved with psychedelics 20 years ago. You know, actually, I did it when I was a teenager. I, I had very little contact with it, but I was doing extreme rock climbs and huge cliffs. And if anybody's seen that that movie about the guy who soloed El Cap, I I I didn't solo it, but I was uh, on that cliff at uh, 17, I think. And I remember getting off that cliff after we spent six days on the vertical wall. And somebody gave me some uh, mescaline and said, here, take uh, take the bus tour around the valley floor on mescaline. And uh, I did. <laughs> all, all of my psychedelic trips have been positive, except one. Right. Um and I remember telling some of the people on that bus that I just climbed that cliff and they didn't believe me. And I thought that was very funny. <laughs> I mean, it's sort of like saying I'd seen God and they say, sure you did. <laughs> but if you did, what are you going to do but laugh, right? You know, yeah. like, I, I can't tell you anything more. And I don't know what I saw. And uh, it was a great experience. But uh, I, I did take the direction of ceremonial and religious use of psychedelics. And for many years, I went to the, these jungle places and these other cultures and Meeting some interesting people, often very different. I will say that the only person I ever met who understood dreams was a shaman. And uh, that made perfect sense to me and has since. They kind of live in a dream world, at least they're facile in moving in and out of a dream world. They don't need psychedelics to have hallucinations. Yep. I remember one time when I was a teenager and I was taking a spiritual course and I said to myself, I want to hear a voice from the beyond. I want to hear a voice, you know? And so this voice said something to me like, you know, get lost, uh, something trivial. And it really, you know, it came from outside. It, would, it was like a schizophrenic experience. And I never had one after that. I, I, I was satisfied, I guess. Uh, I, I mean, I've, I've felt direction, but it's never come quite as disassociated as that. And that led me, that, that leads me to the point I wanted to make. I, then worked with learning, education. I told you I was very rambunctious with regard to educators. So uh, I went into college and took an independent course and independent direction, I should say. And then, then when I was uh, quite a few years out of college, I returned to the subject of learning and went back. This was actually a great idea. I, everyone should do this. I went back to all the important people in my life and I interviewed them. Right. And I said, I sort of said, what the fuck had we done? But I didn't put it that way. I said, 
How do you learn? Yeah. How did you learn? Yeah. And what did you learn? And I did have the other great insight that it's not something, wisdom is not something that one only gets with age. There is a juvenile wisdom called creativity, impulsivity, uh, energy. So I interviewed young people well below my generation. I found them through their parents or something. And I interviewed older people well above my generation. And uh, I went to uh, a guy who I developed a bit of a relationship with um, as a mentor in his older years. He was a neuro. First, he said he was a poet. Then he was a doctor. Then he was a psychiatrist. Then he was an electrical engineer. And finally, he was a neurophysiologist where he finally became famous. And I talked to him after he'd retired. And one of the things that he was famous for was he had this dialogue with Timothy Leary, who had just been fired from his post at the University of Harvard. And my mentor named Jerry Letvin had this dialogue with Timothy Leary. And Timothy Leary said, people who are having this uh, transcendental experience and people who are mentally ill are having a spiritual emergence. And um, I, I do think that was one of the stupider things that Timothy Leary said. And my mentor just shouted, bullshit, which was, you know, true to an extent. Um, but, you know, as, as you just mentioned, with this kid that you work with, there is an opportunity. And with the schizophrenics I've worked with, I've always felt there was an opportunity. Or at least they could be doing a lot better than they were than the box that they were put in. Yeah. Um, I couldn't achieve that with them because I never had the authority to. They were quickly shepherded back to their drugs and their psychiatrists after feeling liberated with me. And uh, so, so I'm sort of halfway between uh, Timothy Leary's spiritual emergence and Jerry Letvin's bullshit. Yeah. And I do think that we're all, well, we're not all schizophrenic, but I do think that it's a kind of a spectrum thing. Certainly dissociation is a big thing if you're going to be wise and shamanic and uh, move into other realms. You do have to learn to let go and and be, I would say, humble or stupid, if you prefer. You know, so so the physicist who told me I wasn't smart enough to work on certain projects, actually a couple people did, but one I respected, the others I didn't. I think they were just being cruel. Have, uh, I don't know, motivated me. So here we are. I didn't even finish my introduction. So I did physics, and then I did the psychedelic shamanic stuff. And, and now, interestingly, that's sort of taking a center stage in psychedelic-assisted psychology or psychotherapy. Yeah. And I look at it with amusement because very few of the psychologists have experience. You know, and like psychiatrists, they're not supposed to take the drugs they prescribe. So nobody quite knows how to dance around this. And it's a bit weird, isn't it? Because as you say, if they haven't experienced it, how do they know what they're patient or participant client is actually feeling what they're going through when they take it. Well, they don't. And that's why these programs are simply supportive. They just make you feel good, make you feel safe. And then they hold your hand till it's over. And then when you come back to their world, which is unfortunate, they talk to you about it and try to, you know, do you know, do you know what a Judas goat is? No. A Judas goat is the goat they have in abattoirs, places where they kill animals, which leads the confused and upset animals into their death. Right. The goat leads them. 
because the goat is the only animal they can relate to who has its wits together. And of course, the goat is not killed, yeah. but all the other animals are. So the Judas goat leads you on. And I, I kind of think that psychology is a little bit of a Judas goat. It leads you back to the, to the world where your problems originated, yeah. to be rational, reasonable, and uh, to fit in. Um, so, you know, I'm right between Timothy Leary's spiritual emergence and Jerry Letvin's bullshit. I, I guess the definition of normality is being able to cope. And the definition of mental illness is not being able to cope. Yeah. Which doesn't say anything about your potential or your skills or your insight. No. So when I work with, oh, I, you know, to finish up my introduction, I, I guess I sort of did. Uh, I'm now becoming a certified clinical counselor after spending 15 years doing brain training and uh, hypnotherapy, which are, you know, liminal and unusual things, but very relevant. And um, I always tell people, well, no, I don't always tell people, but I always think, yep. we're all kind of crazy. And that's a good thing, at least the kind that we can master. And the danger is the part that we can't master. But they're not static. And I believe you can evolve both as a person, as a lineage, and as a species. And that here we go into the complexity area that you're all three of them. Yep. You're a person, yep. a lineage, and a species. And you're making progress potentially on all of those fronts. And your legacy could be on all of those fronts. And your job is to hold it together well enough to get to the finish line, which is being dead, with future potential, which is a little strange. But uh, I do think that uh, in order to go out singing, you have to feel that your role in the world is not over. You know, you are not a has-been. Um, the people I know who've gone out singing, and there have only been two, uh, were both visionary people. One was a psychologist, the other was just a fisherman. But they were people that you knew had moved beyond, at least I knew, where I was and moved into an area I wanted to go. I can't avoid but being vague here. I do think that religion confuses us by making us believe that there's a clear path that we can all find that will lead us forward. Most of the insightful people I know blaze their own trail. They didn't have too many followers. Um, they had a few mentees. They probably helped a lot of people, but nobody exactly followed them. And probably nobody could yeah. exactly yeah. follow them. Um, so I know from your discussion, it sounds like you're a person who's working to realize other people's potential. And it sounds like you find your own value in doing that. And I would say that sort of describes me. I've kind of become antisocial. No, really, I have been. I don't go out and do anything with anybody. I have one friend. We go to Costco together. That's our, that's our social outing. <laughs> he goes there to shop for you know his community. And I go there just to have some social interaction once every two weeks and everybody else I deal with are my clients. And as psychologists, we're told not to befriend your clients, not to reveal, you know, and I say, Oh, fuck all that. You know, I do whatever they need. And I tell them whatever stories resonate with their stories. I'm not a friend in the sense that I prevail on them, but I am a friend in the sense that I'd love to see them bloom. And, and I, and I feel somewhat, 
depressed unreasonably when they don't bloom fast enough. Yeah. You know, so that's my problem, right? That's the typical immature healer problem. Uh, The mature healer doesn't get stuck in that. So uh, I do take lessons from shaman who are an odd sort of healer because they really don't care. You know, your problem is your problem and their skills are small and they're just trying to uh, add some saffron to the mix. And they live in a kind of odd world. So I guess I do too. And I know I'd I'd sort of impressed you with some of this talk about brain states. I I could get into that. And I'm never far from it. Uh, So let me just wrap up my introduction. Now I'm a therapist, but I appreciate the mathematics that I can put. I mean, I don't do this for therapists because they don't understand math. And I don't either, and that's fine. Um, But I do make models of the mind that I find useful and they involve things like uh, chaos and um, ecology and things like that, which, you know, I could talk about, but I won't because I'm really talking about it already. Yeah. Uh, We're doing it right now. Uh, I'm trying to be evasive at the same time as I'm somewhat explanatory. And uh, I don't know where the psychedelics will fit in. But where they do fit in, to conclude, is they enable a person or they accelerate a person in finding other states of perspective and self-understanding or confusion. You know, um, this is one of the big failures of, of reason is that it judges what is unreasonable as unsatisfactory. And that should not be the case because what is unreasonable is what is unknown. Yeah. And generally, if you're trying to change or grow, the unknown is where you want to go. And I guess with using psychedelics as well, it's not always going to come out as a positive outcome when they're under a psychiatrist going through that, is it? I mean, some people it's going to affect completely different. So you might be hoping it it opens their mind and gets them to explore different things or talk about different things. And it could be that, it just does the opposite thing. Well, exactly. I think as the role that all that we can play is protection. Well, I wouldn't say all. There are three roles. You can prepare, you can protect, and you can help integrate. Currently, psychedelic-assisted psychology prepares. They try to ground you and make you feel safe. Yeah. Um, when I do hypnotherapy, some things like past life regression, I find myself in situations where I have to protect because people's shadows tend to rear up to such a degree that I'm afraid they're going to have a traumatic experience. Yeah. And so I, I, I can direct, I can let the gas out or take their foot off the gas pedal. So I've had people in past life regressions who were heading for, for rape and murder. And I didn't feel confident that that was going to be their positive transition. So I kind of directed them away and said, well, let's go to a happier place for now. Let's yeah. get around that whole thing. Yeah. Um, and there are other people, I mean, this is the interesting thing about past life regression, and maybe the most essential part of it, is that you want to get to the end of your story, whatever your story is, your life, and that's usually your death. Yeah. And so what happens after that? Who knows? And that's where you want to be. You want to be in the who knows part where all of your story is done, and there's no more assumptions or presumptions that you can lay on it. 
Yeah. And to be in that space can be very valuable because you can discover all kinds of emotions and feelings and energies, which are, one could say, real, at least as real as any other emotions and feelings and energies, and guiding. So here's the situation, as you expressed in psychedelics, some of these experiences could be heading toward the negative. And you could take uh, the Timothy Leary approach that, oh, it's just going to be a spiritual emergence. Or you could take the Jerry Lutfin approach, which is bullshit. This person is mentally ill and you're leading them off to the edge of their cliff. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we that's our obligation as therapists, not to lead them off the edge of the cliff, but basically to keep them away from the edge of the cliff. Yeah. And it may be our mistake. I had a past life regression where the person turned out to be a murderer. Murderer is okay. Murdery is a little more not so okay. But this person was the murderer, and it gave, you know, the, this sweet little old, innocent little old lady got a perspective that she didn't seem to have before. And she actually said to me, well, this explains why I feel so guilty all my life. Oh, I don't know if there's any truth to that, but it certainly brought the idea up, and I assume she could use it because she created it. Another person, I just say these because they're interesting, who I did a past life regression with, turned out to be retarded in their story and this person was an extremely insightful intellectual person so that being retarded was a real switch for me to witness and for her to experience yeah and i think you and i experienced that when we work with clients who are supposedly disabled or you know mentally ill it's often at least in my experience really enlightening and and i i feel a greater empathy than i do with quote, normal people who share, you know, my trivial concerns yeah, and uh, stuff like that. And, and so this gets back to the, the one negative psychedelic experience I had was the one where I lost all contact with everything I knew. I couldn't remember my body, my history, my presence. I had no sense of anything. And it was actually one of the, perhaps the only time when I thought killing myself would definitely be better than this reality. There was no redeeming value to existing in this reality. And that gives me some insight into a person who's suicidal, which I don't think you, which none of this sort of analytic therapy would provide. And how long were you in that phase? Only 10 minutes. Oh, okay. Very short, but 10 minutes is enough. Yeah. You know, I mean, you don't only need a second to kill yourself. Yeah. So, um, you know, and if I had a body, you know, I, I definitely would have tried to do something. Um, as it was, the experience was short-lived and I was able to find my way out of it, you know, but I mean, you can understand something would, if you haven't, if you believe that everything in your past that was positive was an illusion and the only truth is, uh, horror. I mean, who wants to live through that? That's ridiculous. Just makes perfect sense. So that was, that was an interesting experience, uh, I don't want to do it again, but maybe sometime I'll, I'll have the courage to try. I, I don't know. I, I mean, this is the kind of question you, you, you never really know and you can't overdo it. You know, like my mountaineering experiences, there were, there were times when I, I was climbing on a shoelace, literally. And I thought, this is ridiculous. You know, here I am on the top of a cliff attached with a shoelace. It's because all I could attach myself to the rope was with the shoelace. I took off my shoe. 
um, you know, like all accidents, it happens like as the third state, as the third mistake in a series of mistakes, at which point you're just lucky there's, oh, I got to stop doing this. I could go on with lots of experiences where I ended up attached to a shoelace. Actually, talking to you is my attempt to get away from the shoelace. You know, right. Get a bigger audience to sell more books and uh, have more of an income. I mean, literally. Yeah. The, the more of a thought leader you are, somebody called me a thought leader, the less uh, handholds you have. So uh, I'm relying on you to take the next step. <laughs> and that's it, isn't it? I mean, I guess uh, you like to be alone and that's great. I mean, I, I said to you when I spoke to you before, once I finish work and I get home, I like nothing better to just lay on the couch and read a book or go for a walk with my dog, you know, because I've had people all day long that I just want my own space in my head. And having your own space in your head for some people is really good, for other people not so, maybe more negative. Uh, I guess it's how you think and how you problem solve uh, and what you construct in your head of what's going on around you. But I, I find uh, when I get home in the evenings to just be on my own and rethink through some of the day and... Uh, think about what's going on for the next week. There's nothing better than that to have your own time and space. And I think in my experience, people tend to overcrowd their heads with so much stimuli that in the end, they can't actually remember what they're doing from day to day because all they're doing is, I guess, events to them every day. Um, they don't actually have any time to sit and be with themselves and, and process what they've done. Yes. I think like growing up in the 70s, there wasn't so much technology around. You found your own fun in the street with the neighbours, with your cousins. Um, and I think nowadays we have so much technology that people are constantly bombarding their brain and their brain actually isn't having any time to think about or problem solve the issues they've got in their life because they're using different stimuli to keep their brains active and there's no downtime where you can just sit and work out everything that's going on around you. You know, I, I look at kids uh, around 18, 25 who are either clubbing or partying or computer games or whatever they're doing. But I think with when we had COVID, it was sort of a time where for some people there was more time to think and actually plot out what you wanted to do with your life. And, yes, there were more divorces, more separations, but I think people didn't realise how much investment there is in a relationship. And when you're put under that microscope, I guess, of 24 hours a day with the same person, then you start to see, well, actually, this isn't where I am or what I want to be. It's okay to see them for a few hours each night and maybe on a Saturday, but I'm seeing them 24-7 and I can't get out of the house and not allowed to go anywhere. I have to stay with them, you know. And I, those people, I think, had time to think and go, actually, this isn't the life I wanted. I think we just plot on. And for people like us that sit down and think through issues and things, you, you, you're actually constantly updating what you want to do or where you are or what you should be thinking about. I think other people just go with the flow of what's happening and put loads of things in front of them. Yeah, I think it's useful. I'm now switching into the, the mode of trying to be useful in our conversation. <laughs> um, I think it's useful to remember that we're always filtering our perception. And if we're constantly being subject to input or we're constantly subjecting ourselves to input, then we're constantly using the filter that we've built. 
And it's like, if you're focused on the road 30 yards ahead of you, it's very hard to get a sense of what your choices are because you're just trying to stay in the lines. And that's kind of what I'd say most of us are doing when we're given the opportunity to, to obsess or fixate or becoming compulsive about how we use our time. Yep. My son is 11 and he spends all his time on computer games. And a lot of adults complain about this. Um, but I've known many people who've moved through the 11 to 16 year old phase obsessed with computer games and come out the other side better for it. In other words, their games have not been what they might have appeared to be from the outside. They've been very social. Uh, they've felt personally rewarded. Um, I try to teach my son, you know, the punishment I give my son is watching a documentary. He hates documentaries. It's the ultimate in punishment. Although he liked my octopus teacher, which was a great documentary. Oh, yeah. yeah. Came by. I was surprised he liked it. It was a beautiful film. Um, but his mother, who I am not, uh, uh, you know, ensconced with, has turned out, to my surprise, to be evangelically Christian. So she gives him Bible studies, right. which I keep my mouth shut about because, you know, there's nothing really wrong with that stuff yeah. at, for a young age. I think it gets a bit obsessive when you're older. So the documentaries I'm forcing on my son are religious history. Like, okay, you want to read Bible stuff? Well, let's talk about, you know, the Ottoman Empire. And let's talk about the Eastern Church. And I've managed to get him to watch these documentaries with plenty of cupcakes and the option to play his, uh, play his Nintendo Switch at the same time. Yeah. And that's my concession, right? He's, I say, you're not listening. He said, I am listening, sort of, you know. So this is interesting. This is, it's hard to actually say what happens when you are ensconced with your device or your environment is overwhelmed with technology. Although I don't socialize at all. I mean, I spend most of my time sitting here on my butt in front of this computer, writing books and reading articles to an obsessive degree. Yeah. I'd love to go out and, and date, except I hate dating. And uh, the few times I've tried, it's just been painful. <laughs> I mean, not to mention a waste of time. So I'd rather go with my friend to Costco and talk about the people we see every two weeks. I do think that whatever you're doing, you could probably, and you should probably flip it around and ask yourself if you can be a creator of it rather than a consumer of it. Yeah. For me, I always find creator, being a creator is a, a place of opportunity, even if it seems impossible. So I'm trying to write computer programs to simulate the mind. Well, that seems impossible. That's fair. I think it probably is impossible but you can still make progress and you can still feel change. Uh, I, I wrote recently a biography of my father and I gave it to my brother and sister to read. And they were the meanest, most destruct. They made the meanest, most destructive, most disheartening comments I've ever heard them make to me. And I thought after I wiped myself off the floor, that's great. I, I, I realize I never really knew them. And uh, that's not to say that their, their negative personalities were all of them, but they certainly had something to get off their shoulders. Yeah. And, and I was like the match that 
lit in the oxygen filled room and the whole thing sort of blew up. Um, I, I will go ahead and continue to write that book. I'm sure I will never get any support from them. But by being a creator, I was able to combust something that otherwise just would have sat there till the next generation, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and would have uh, infiltrated into the minds of our kids somehow. This, this lack of, of truly addressing whatever it was that they were addressing. Like I say, I don't know. I didn't really grow up with them, but it had something to do with my father and me and them. I, I will take um, Timothy Leary. I don't, I don't know much good about Timothy Leary. He was a political figure and he said a lot of stupid things, but he was in the leading of the original psychedelic emergence. And I do think that most of these things that we consider illnesses are opportunities. Certainly that's the only good way I've found of approaching them. I remember dealing, one of my clients was a schizophrenic who had anger management problems. And basically I felt according to his world, he had good reason to be angry. I mean, people kept telling him that he was uh, retarded when he was actually trying to be an artist. Yeah. And uh, I think a lot of artists would probably fit the model of being schizophrenic or at least some of them, some of the great ones, and they didn't get much help or any help at all. One of the things that I talked to you about getting back to the idea of being helpful to our listeners is that brain states, it's very hard to see what your state of mind is because you're always looking out from within it. You know, it always, it always justifies itself. That's, it seems to be the, the satanic role of our mind is to always justify our state of our point of view. And it's very useful when we're using it to good effect. And it can be very destructive when it is self-destructive. Yeah. You know, rumination, compulsion can be endlessly capturing. And it's very hard to see that you're in that state because you're seeing the world through that filter. Yeah. So brain training, and this really gets back to simpler things like meditation, which is a form of brain training, um, where you're trying to push your awareness in a certain direction. The benefit of it, and my father always disparaged it, is that it gives you more space for something to happen and you want confusion and a lack of predictability. And for that, you need a certain measure of safety and it would be nice to have some support, you know, financial, material, emotional, but it seems that the more we go out on a limb to discover ourselves, the less of the support we get, you know, there, there are successful people who are writers and thinkers like I'm thinking of Seth Godin and, Malcolm Gladwell, who write these books about insight, inspiration, and management. And I just know that they hamstring themselves by having to be popular yeah. and commercial. And the further they get in their own thinking, the less able they'll be to sell it. And, you know, that's their problem. They'll have to figure that out. And who knows even who they are? They're they're such um, cardboard figures, uh, celebrities. And I think that's the problem as well, isn't it, is people who start out with some amazing idea that catches on, then they don't tend to move too far away from that initial idea because they know that's the idea that made them money or made them famous or made them a great writer. So they're always going to just float around that same orbit Whereas they might have really radical ideas that could come out, but they're like, oh, no, 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 no. I've, I've got to stick to this because this is my winning formula. Yeah. There's this uh, idea, funny, I never figured it out, that scientists do their best work 
when they're young? Well, that's obvious because later they get obliged to stay in with the fold. But then musical composers seem to make their best works when they're older. That's always been a bit of a mystery. And, and it seems to be that once you're famous as a celebrity, it's hard to not be famous. Yeah. I mean, once you're, you know, Marlon Brando or Humphrey Bogart, you can kind of do anything you want and they'll still go to your movies. And in fact, those guys did get kind of perverse and ill yeah. in their later life, um, which was probably their engagement with who they really were all along. But look, I mean, with Marlon Brando, if you think about the last movie he made, which I think was The Island of Dr. Moreau, you know, as you say, he was so famous that people went to see it just because he hadn't made a film for so long. They wanted to see what he was like in it. And it was a terrible film. Was it? <laughs> well, I only know Last Tango in Paris and, and Apocalypse, both of which he was in, which were good films, but he, he seemed to be somewhat real in those films. Or at least he, he was great. I don't know who what real is, right? Look, I guess when you're Marlon Brando, though, it comes to a point where they're just happy to have your signature on, aren't they, and that you're in the film and they'll let you do whatever you want as long as you're in it. Yeah, and those two roles were such weird roles, such perverse roles anyway. Yeah. Well, I think we should actually look at wrapping up this one. Okay, I find really? people, when they're listening, attention span is great for that 45 minutes. Once we start getting over that, they start to go, oh, look, I've got something else I need to do now. Yeah, okay, great. Well, then <laughs> let's talk about next time. Um, I'm writing a book called Instant Enlightenment, which is all about brain states. And I, I think it's increasingly important. And uh, another book about therapeutic dreaming. Okay. Pretty much also about brain states. Yeah. Um, so maybe next time we'll talk about those things. Yeah, that'd be great. Well, Lincoln, do you actually want to tell me uh, where people can get in contact with you? Right. Two things. The website, which is a little overwhelming, is called mindstrengthbalance.com, all one word, mindstrengthbalance.com. And you'll find everything from therapy to education and hypnosis there. And... Uh, there's a blog which I produce free on a monthly basis and for a subscription on a weekly basis and accompanying podcasts. And if you sign up for the free version or any version, um, I'll give you the link to a book that's popular that I wrote called Becoming Lucid, which has uh, a short amount of text and uh, nine hypnotic inductions that you can download mp3 files um so sign up for the blog and you'll get the link to get the digital book all right well i'll have to have a look at that too i have looked at your website quite a few times and i've read some of your blogs maybe i'll go and download those you'll like the book you will like the book all right it's not too big no it's quite small beautiful that's the sort of book i like to read <laughs> all right well thank you so much lincoln we'll catch up again in the next few months and uh thank you for coming on the podcast Thank you very much. No worries. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, that was another episode of Life Changes You. If you want to contact us, we're available on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And we also have a website, lifechangesyou.com.au. So until next time, take care of each other, and thanks for listening.